Hello, friends. I'm Paul Cardall. My guest today is Elaine Bradley. She's the drummer from the multi-platinum selling band Neon Trees. It started with a whisper. Their fourth album comes out this month. She's also the host of Grace Notes on BYU Television. Thank you for joining us today on All Heart with Paul Cardall. How are you doing, Elaine? I'm doing well. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. Through the years, we've seen a lot of bands come out of Utah, particularly Provo. We've seen a lot of big groups come out, for example... Uh, just to name a few of these, Royal Bliss, The Used, Fictionists, The National Parks, Dan Reynolds' band, Imagine Dragons. Of course, they moved to Vegas. And then your band with Tyler Glenn, Neon Trees. Yeah, yeah, we still claim Provo, Utah. Not many of us live there anymore, but uh, that's that's our roots. And I don't think we'll ever be anywhere, like from anywhere other than Provo as a band. So, so what is it. it about Provo, Utah that was creating all of this? these bands, this, this success, what was the, what was the scene like? Oh, I think, I think there were a few factors that made it as um, serious as it was. Cause here's the thing about me. I, when I was younger, I've never seen um, sports or music as a hobby. I've always kind of done them so seriously that like, I don't understand people who don't take it seriously. You know, when I moved after, so I tr- served a church mission, like I said, and I thought I had given everything up like to go on that mission because I had broken up a band and, you know, changed my life and just decided to devote to, you know, almost to like a year and a half to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know? So I'm like, it's like a major life thing. And I'm thinking my life's over. Plus when you're in your early twenties, you think that your life's almost over if you haven't established, it's like, if you're in a rock band, you're like, oh no, I'm done. You know what I mean? Right. If I and go on this mission for a year and a half, I'm done. And at that age, you feel like you have to go out and save the world. Less that for me, more like I wanted to be a rock star, but like, yeah, it's more like I was falling on a sword for Jesus, you know, right. I, I, at least that's what I thought. I thought, okay, I, I know, I, I know this is true. I, I know I need to share this with people. So this is what I'm going to do based on that knowledge, but I don't like it. You know what I mean? It was like, it was more of a duty because of what I knew than it was like my own personal stoke level on like talking to people about Jesus. Cause I, I really, frankly, I love talking to people about Jesus. What I do not like is talking to unwilling strangers about Jesus. You know what I mean? So it's like a different ball game being on a mission versus being on a podcast about whatever. And then Jesus is a part of my life. So he comes up, you know what I mean? But knocking on somebody's door while they're having dinner and going, excuse me, I would like to share with you a message about Jesus Christ. Like that's a, that's a whole different ball game. So anyway, I digress. So I thought I was falling on a huge fat sword and I thought I was giving up everything I ever wanted to do what I knew I should, you know, which is, and I used to think that God was like this really, um, not vengeful, but like kind of, you know, the Depeche Mode song, Blasphemous Rumors, that God right. has a sixth sense of humor. Classic. I think that's kind of the image of God. Yeah, I think, I, well, I grew up on Depeche Mode, so maybe that's what informed my choices in my mind. But right. I thought God was all about asking you to do things you didn't want to do just to see if you'd do them. I uh, yeah, served that mission. And so when I got off of my mission, I was kind of like, ugh, like what a... Now that my life is over at the tender, you know, in my early 20s, I'm, ten, I'm tenderly like, just it's over. You know what I mean? So I'm like, shoot, uh, what do I do? I'll, I'll be practical. I'll go, to, I'll go to college. Ended up going to BYU because there was another missionary in my mis- mission who heard my old band and was like, oh, you, you, uh, we have to play music. 
And I was like, whatever. He got permission to call me on our missions, which if you don't know um, LDS missions, it's like you don't call people unless you have permission and you no socializing like you don't it's not what it's about you know from having served a mission myself we were not allowed to listen to anything but the tabernacle choir and i thought that was insane because music is what fuels you and fuels me to get out and do something what what was that like for you not being able to listen to your bands that you love well, here's the cool thing is our mission president, you know, he didn't set strict guidelines. So I actually listened to this Brazilian band, O Madre Deus, uh, which is not at all like a Christian band, but it just like super cool, cool music. And then right. people, he actually let me have a recorder and I recorded acoustic songs and then it circulated around the mission. And then he let the office elders play my old CDs uh, in the missionary van. So that's how this guy heard it. He was in the missionary van like going from one area to another or doing some errand, I don't know. And he was like, whoa, what is this rock music? And they're like, oh, this is Sister Dodie. That was my maiden name, Sister Dodie's band. And he's like, whoa, ah, and like just flipped out and got permission to call me before I went home and was like, hey, I know this is a long shot. I know you're not from Utah, but you should come out to Utah. You should really think about it. We need to play music. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, how many people go, we need to jam. Right. So I did not decide right away. Yeah, I didn't, I did not decide right away to go after he got home he got home six weeks later, he called me every week and would start the phone call like this. Hey, Elaine, when you coming out? And I was like, okay, Bryce, settle. You know, like we'd talk and we'd laugh and we became really good friends. And so after about, I think maybe four or five phone calls like that, I was like, all right, well, I might as well apply. I've got nothing else doing. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I got three bands over here that I'm like working hard on and I can't possibly be pulled away. I'd given up everything. So I decided to apply to BYU and got in, got a scholarship. So I was like, okay, I can't not go. So I went and we ended up playing music and it wasn't that great. And then just we're friends, hung out, you know? And then because I, I felt guilty and he felt kind of bad. I was like, hey, I have a drum set from when I was a kid. Uh, why don't I just play that while you mess around on guitar and we'll just, we'll see if that's cool. And both of us were like, oh, because we hate jamming. We like writing, you know, but we're like, oh, okay. And so we got together and did that. And it was actually pretty cool. So we ended up forming with another guy, a bassist. We ended up forming this band called Another Statistic in 2004, end of 2004. Yeah. And that was a Provo band. So that was my first Provo band. So that's how I started playing the drums for real, like in a serious way. Where did that name come from being in Provo? Another Statistic. Was that about getting housing, getting married? Yeah, right. No, in Maybe. fact, it's much deeper, deeper and darker than that. If you want to go there, it was actually from a song lyric because we decided the band name after we wrote a few songs. And the song was about abortion <laughs> and what a blight it is in our society. Oh so, yeah, um, the wow. line is the girl you love is another statistic. Pro-life or Zoloft, the yeah. life never forgetting her. Anyway, woo. I know. Hey, pro-life. I, I just, I'm the, you know what? I adopted two kids too. So I'm like, I could not be, I think back then I was pro-life, but like socially pro-choice. And now I'm just pro-life. I can't, I'm just unapologetically pro-life. I, I just can't see the logic sure. in killing a baby, especially when I adopted two that could have easily be, been killed by their mothers. And I'm so grateful they weren't, right. you know? Right. Anyway, a little misty about that. So, uh, woo, Beautiful. digression. Beautiful. Adopted two children. How many kids do you have? We have four. So had one, adopted one, had one, adopted one. So it's a nice little little mix of kids. But they it's frankly, you can't really tell which ones are which. They all look alike. So it's kind of kind of beautiful the way that happened. Wow. That's awesome. That's fantastic. 
Um, so Provo, uh, another statistic, playing shows, doing pretty well. We were one of the bigger bands in the scene between 2005, 2006, seven. And that's actually how I met the guys in Neon Trees. Where do you gig though in Provo, Utah? So both Velour and Muse would have Battle of the Bands. And another statistic did a Battle of the Bands at Muse with Neon Trees. It was like their first like Battle of the Bands. And we had been around for a good what, year and a half or so. Uh, in the scene, so we were kind of bigger than they were, you know, because they were at the start and we were kind of established and we beat them in the Battle of the Bands, which made Tyler and and I nemesis at this Battle of the Bands. And I thought they were good and talented. And of course we won, so I thought that was justified. But Tyler was like not happy about it because he wanted to win, obviously. So the the thing about Provo, to go back to like your first, first question, is what made it so legitimate and so cool was the seriousness level that I talked about. Like there weren't a lot of, of bands playing on the bigger stages, you know, at Valora. Cause it, it was like Valora was like the um, major league and all the other clubs were the farm teams. So you like had to play the other clubs and prove that you could do it first mm-hmm. before Corey would be like, you can play at Valora. So it was like a real, you're coming up kid if you could play at Valora, you know? Right. And so there was this healthy camaraderie and competition between the bands in this scene. Cause you always were like, okay, well they brought 120 people and we only brought 105. Next time we're bringing more than them. You know what I mean? It was like very, we wanted to be, you know, you want to be paid more. You wanted to be the headliner. Like there was a right. very healthy sense of competition that I love about sports and that I love in music that it existed in Provo. Um, so yeah, I, that's kind of like how I made the transition. So I was already playing the drums again because of another statistic. And then the guys in the entrance, it was Chris and Tyler originally were in that band and they had uh, another couple guys playing with them. And I remember watching them and being like, wow, the singer and the guitarist are very talented and they seem to be very serious and that's cool. They got to drop the dead weight. Like, I, I, And then I ended up dating Chris and basically the whole time we dated, we just plotted about like, how to like do our bands, you know, and like how to conquer the world. We actually started another band called Less Yes, which was epic, but only lasted a few months. Had the best t-shirts in town though. Um, So yeah, we just, after a while, I think we kind of realized that the only thing we had really in common was the music and it wasn't so much like a a romance thing, but stayed friends and we just plotted to get me in the band basically. So when they finally were ready to make the split with their, less committal people. Cause they were kind of like moving and shaking, like, Hey guys, we got to do this. We got to pay for this so we can do this. We got to go and, you know, move our bodies. We got to go and get some help. We're going to try and play this show here. And it's going to cost money. Cause you know, in the beginning of a band, you're not making money. Like it's just, yeah. it's just not happening. It's very much an investment. It's very much a startup. You know, you're an entrepreneur. So these other guys kind of weren't really willing to put forth, the, you know, put skin in the game. So they parted with them at the same time that Chris and I were, plotting to get me in the band so we we're like yes and so chris was like okay tyler like elaine is on the same page and he's like well i don't want a girl drummer because <laughs> and it, it in tyler's defense i agree with him because what he didn't right. want was a token girl drummer he didn't want the girl in the band for the looks he didn't want the girl in the band because just you know like the bassist who's not very good but it's like right she's the look of the band right. and so it's like cool to have a girl but yep. he did not want that and i agreed with him so i was like okay let me prove it. Let me just play. Cause you need to, they had shows booked without these guys. Like, so they needed a lineup. So I was like, great. Chris was like, fine, let her play. If you don't like it, then we'll just use her for the shows and we'll get somebody else, yeah. you know? And 
knowing full well, Chris and I were like, no, you're not going anywhere. You're staying. You know what I mean? So yeah, I earned my slot, which is great. I mean, that's the way it should be. I, I feel better having earned my slot than if Tyler would have said, cool, we need some boobs in the band. Yeah, it'll be great for, for look for a label. You know what I mean? I don't see Tyler so, being that. Well, especially not knowing what we know now. Right, right. <laughs> Back then, no, we didn't know. And banging on the drums. That's great. So when you heard their music, were you impressed? Or did you feel like, oh, yeah, we can add so much more? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you're being a person, you're always inherently a little selfish and narcissistic, especially an artist. You know what I mean? Oh, so yes. you're always like, oh, that's so cool. But it'd be cooler with me in it. You know what I mean? Like, so that's kind of like how I thought about it. But I, I did think I, I, as far as like Tyler goes, I didn't think I could bring anything to him. I just thought I could solidify what was going on. So it wouldn't take away from him. You know what I mean? Yeah, you basically. So I always it. tell Tyler, he's really. Sure. Well, he's really the only person I would ever play behind. In my other band, it was a threesome. Oh, yeah. Like we didn't three piece. I didn't play behind anybody and we switched instruments. So I played guitar for a couple songs. He played the drums. So, and it was very much like duetting all the time. So it wasn't like I was a musician, you know what I mean? So when I joined Neon Trees, it was a real downgrade for me as an artist, as far as like my position in the band, you know what I mean? So I kind of like right. took a, took a job demotion I, I don't get to be the the, the lead thing in the entries I, I just don't get that luxury no matter how hard I work no matter how many dues I pay I will not be the attraction for neon trees so I had to decide to do that and I'd always tell Tyler I told him back then too I would never have chosen to play behind anyone else but he was so good and so worth supporting that it didn't bother my pride at all because it was such an upgrade of musicianship and it's such a pleasure to be a part of of what he's doing and, and the type of talent that he has and it's, it's so much fun to be able to interact with that on stage and it's fun to sing with him and it's just it's just a real treat so but so that, that that would be very hard for me to do with somebody else he definitely is a showman i remember being at love loud where they were going to escort him and it was carefully orchestrated or you know escort him to the to the stage in the middle of the massive crowd. And he walked out like he owned the place. It was, it was a powerful, beautiful moment watching Tyler in his element at his best uh, perform. And so I can understand and see the, you know, you must've been like, wow, this guy is something else. Just really gifted, really talented. Is, do you feel like it's uh, his band? Because everybody oh, yeah. says, oh, it's his band, their band, my band, you know. I definitely think it started out a little more collaborative. But at the same time, we were all kind of cutting our teeth at the same time. We were we were growing as artists. And I don't think he knew what he could do yet. You know what I mean? I don't think we right. knew either. We kind of just saw potential and he saw potential in, in us. And it just worked so well because we all had the same focus for like what we wanted. We never talked in terms of, well, if it doesn't happen, it was always like, okay, when this, then this, and then when this, then this, it was never if, and maybe it won't. It was always like, I don't even think we meant to do it. It was just the way we all felt about music and making music together and what the band was doing. We just all had this like really almost inexplicable and maybe even at times unfounded confidence in, sure. in our group. You know well, I think I mean? you need you need that in a band in order to be successful. If you're not confident, if you don't have a game plan, it's going to take so long to really be on the road trying to hash it out, trying to figure it all out. And those that really are passionate and have a 
commitment get there a lot faster. When did neon trees have their first real breakthrough moment? It was when Ronnie Venucci, the drummer for the Killers, he's a friend of Brandon's back from the Vegas scene. Brandon grew up in Vegas. And he would come see Brandon's bands off and on, you know, through Brandon's played in so many bands. Okay. And then they, you know, Brandon ended up getting married and living in Utah. And so they went their separate ways. And Ronnie ended up joining the Killers eventually. And Brandon ended up joining Neon, Neon Trees. But Brandon, you know, he's been in tons of bands. So over the years, Ronnie would come to see his bands, whatever. So he came to see Neon Trees at a bowling alley in Vegas and there were like 10 people there and it was probably half or more family and it's like some stragglers, you know, but then there was Ronnie as well. Uh, and after the show, Ronnie said to us, like, you guys played that show like there were 10,000 people there. It did not even matter to you whether there were people there or not. You put on the show that I would expect, you know, in front of like a huge audience. And I think that's what impressed him about our band. And so he was like, okay, well, let me see. Let me see if I can help you guys. Uh, they had some what they called warm-up shows. So they were ready to go on like this huge world tour. And they had two small club shows planned just as like kind of a tour warm-up to get them going and to be a special fan experience or whatever. So they had one in Vegas um, and then one in San Francisco at the Fillmore. And the Vegas one, I think, was at, I don't even know where that was. Smaller club inside of a casino. And uh, they asked us to open those two shows. So it wasn't like a huge tour. It wasn't like, hey, get in the tour bus, kids. You know, it was like, hey, you can do these two shows and you can drive your dumb, right. dingy van with no air conditioning to them. And let's see what happens. And so that's the first thing that really like okay. got us some notoriety because the fans that were there in these small clubs were impressed. And, you know, there was some label buzz, like who's this nobody band opening for the killers for these two shows? Where'd they come from? What's going on? And at the same time, we were kind of trying to circulate this uh, two-song demo that we had, you know? So it's like, I think it kind of hit on a few fronts, but that was the icing on the cake where it was like, okay, that this is the thing that's breaking through. And so that's how we got some label interest. And then, I mean, that was in 2008. 2008. Um, that's, that's absolutely solid advice because when you treat your performance like it's for, you know, it doesn't matter if it's one person, 10 people, 100 you have to just do an, an amazing performance. Agreed. Yeah, and every fan counts. Like, we, we would count it as a success. We went on a tour before the killer shows. We tried to do this West Coast tour in our hot van that I mentioned with no air conditioning and no windows on the side and no insulation. Uh, and we did this show, I remember, in Portland, and it was so pathetic. And it was just, like, in this terrible part of town. And, like, there were maybe, like, 10 or 11 people there. But, like four or five bought shirts and we were like boom success done you know what i mean that's half the audience right totally bought our shirt that's some success. gas money and maybe a village inn oh yeah you know and it and it matters if you win people over and like i i think some of those people still are neon trees fans you know sure. what i mean so it's like that yeah if you and i think it shows also a, a bit of um humility as an artist because it's tempting especially after you've tasted what it feels like to play in front of more people to go back to playing in front of a lot of people is right. kind of embarrassing and can feel a little beneath you, you know? So if you treat those moments the same that you would treat the more impressive moments, then I think that shows humility and shows gratitude for those who did come to see you. Because how rude is it to punish people because other people didn't come? Punish people who actually came because right. other people didn't come. Do you have a relationship with your fans? Do you communicate with those that reach out to you? 
That's a tough line. That's a tough line. Um, especially because I'm kind of an intensely, um, not private person. Cause I'm very much an open book, as you know, in talking to me, like, but that's because I'm talking to you and I don't, I don't sh- overshare online. I'm not, I, I unfortunately for myself, I'm not narcissistic enough to have a social media presence because I don't right. freaking care. And I don't want to take pictures of myself all the time. And I don't want to stage life to look better than it is. And I just don't find myself a meaningful character enough to like, pose meaningfully. I just don't, I don't care about the whole game. You know what I mean? So I don't do that. But at the same time, like I really am grateful for fans. And if, if we're at the show and somebody says like, Elaine, I I wouldn't be like, no, you know what I mean? I would definitely come and talk to them or whatever. But like, if, if people want to like reach out and like have a personal email relationship, it's probably not going to happen because I don't, I don't have the bandwidth for that. I don't have space in my life for a bunch of auxiliary communications. Like I concentrate a lot on my family when I'm home. It's my husband and my kids when I'm home, sure. you know? And then if I'm doing other stuff, like I'm doing the show, grace notes that we talked about, or like I'm doing neon trees. And so like my bandwidth is very like specifically spent on things. And I right. feel like if I dallied more in social media, it would take away from the other things that I think are actually more important. So it's no offense to the, to people who consider themselves like fans that don't get responses from me it's just uh, priorities you know what i mean like uh, so it's not no there's no mean spirit there but at the same time i just can't i just i'm not gonna I'm, i just can't as a christian though do you consider your music career a calling or a job you know i consider it a job especially because i'm in a secular band you know what i mean so for me it has to be a job or else my calling is going awful you know what I mean? Like I'm not doing very well at my right. calling. If if this is my calling, whoops. You know, so uh yeah, I definitely consider neon trees to be my job. Mm-hmm. And obviously to me it's more it's much more than that. It's not just a job to me, but the way that I prioritize it, it's my job. You know what I mean? It's not my family, it's it's below my family. You know what I mean? Like it's not my kids, it's not, it's it, it is what it is and I value it and I care for it and I, I care to work for it and I, whatever. But yeah, as far as like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. That said, if somebody reached out with some pertinent question and I felt like I should answer it, I, I don't like just tell the spirit right. to shut up right. in, in, in those things. But at the same time, I frankly don't read all the messages that I get because if I did, then I would think I would feel a moral obligation to like do something about it. Yeah, I think it's so I feel like it's better to pre-filter. <laughs> People emotionally connect so much with music that they feel like they know you. They feel like you're their their friend and you want to talk to them and you want to, you know, be inspired by them. And yet sometimes when you meet artists that you absolutely love, you're disappointed. Have you had any of those experiences? Uh, a few. So I've had both sides of that spectrum. The one side of the spectrum where I was kind of disappointed, but it's still, it's a delicious story. So I'm actually not that disappointed is when I met Jodie Foster. Um, cause right, my because whole so life, many people think you look like Jodie Foster. My whole life has been intertwined with Jodie Foster as a concept. You know what I mean? Like as a person, she has played a big role in my life because I get compared to her so much, you know? So we're on Letterman at the same time that she's the guest, we're the musical guest. So I'm like, oh my God, when are the stars ever going to align like this? I know, right? So I'm like, well, this I need to facilitate a picture because if I could get a picture with the person who's like, I'm supposed to look like my whole life, I I could die. I could just take a picture and then die and it would be okay. So this was like my goal. And so after we played, 
she was exiting the the guest room, the green room area. And there and at the Letterman setup at, back then, it was like an upper floor, you know, everything's in Manhattan. So it's like all squished like this. Right. So it was like an upper floor and you have to take an elevator down a couple of flights of our couple of stories to get out of the building. So I noticed her going to the elevator and I'm running to like, Jody, you know, elevator doors closing, you know, and I'm like, ah, Jody, and then elevator doors close. She goes down. So I'm sprinting down the flights of stairs and I get to the elevator right before the doors open. I'm like, ah, Jody, Jody, wait. Anybody has ever said to me, you know, who you look like the answer is Jody Foster. And it just means so much to me. I know that this is inconvenient for you and it probably doesn't matter, but this would just mean so much to me if you would take a picture with me. And so I'm thinking at least like a little amuse, amusement because that's kind of a funny story. You know, like, oh, your whole life people have told, okay. like if somebody told me that, I'd be like, oh, whoa, amazing. Her reaction was this. Was, oh, Jody, I, you know, every time I'm like, can we take a picture together? <sighs> okay. <laughs> it's like, oh man. But so you got a photo. Oh, I got the photo. Yeah, so you, it's a good photo too. Uh, yeah, whatever. And I, she left. There's something about being mysterious that draws everybody's attention. And yet it's now, true. and maybe this is what you've created by not having a social media presence. Maybe. I think it's more just out of convenience for my, and like selfishness for myself, but hopefully it's working for me, right? Right. But you're becoming more and more popular because now you actually have your own TV show. Yeah, that's cool. That's a that's a cool thing. I'm stoked about that. Grace I mean, Notes, which is put together by Brigham Young University. Yep, exactly. And, you know, we have great guests like yourself. I had fun. Travis Green was another cool grab. You know what I mean? Like, it was really cool to see Christian artists agree to come on the show and talk about their faith and their music and how the to intertwine and it's just it was such a cool experience and i hope that as the show grows i hope it does grow first of all period <laughs> and then as it grows i hope that more people become aware of it and more artists want to be a part of it and there's so much to be learned from each other like i had such a good time interviewing everybody because this is i mean the show is right up my alley because if i didn't do music you know people always say well if you didn't do music if you weren't in a band what would you do you know like what career would you have and my answer is always like i would love to be in television or movies like I, that's just whatever I can do in front of an audience to like make them enjoy right. my presence in mm -hmm. front of their eyes and have me be yeah. the focus like that's what I'd like to do so I definitely feel like it's a selfish thing I'm definitely driven to do it by my own selfish compulsions but I was presented with the opportunity through no effort of my own and so in that way I feel very led to it I feel like the producers were led to me and I was led to it and my schedule work with their schedule, like miracle of miracles, you know, to because it's not often that I'm in one place for very long. So we were able to get the whole show filmed in one month, which actually worked out great for Corona because imagine trying to keep a show going during these times would be terrible. I know, I know. So I feel, I feel really led, led for this process. But <laughs> if I weren't driven in all those other ways, I don't think I could be led. So I think it's like the whole dumb adage which is totally not dumb because it's very apropos, very accurate, is work like it's up to you, but pray like it's up to God. It's like, that's that's so true. Just do what you can in your sphere and go for what you want, but keep that prayer line open and say, hey, if this, this is the thing I'm going for. I don't think God wants you to not choose and say what? Because he's not going to go, this is, you know what I mean? He'll go, okay, not that way. Right. If you choose to go that way, not that way. 
mm-hmm. it's like you, you got to choose and say, this is my focus, God, Lord, guide me, you know? And it's like, you might be going this way and you might get it. And I think the unique relationship that we each have with this higher power and however we want to personally define that is Depeche Mode so personally did that with personal Jesus. But the way that I've been able to comprehend it in my mind, you tell me if I'm on or off, but my father had, my father and my mother have eight children, but each of us have our own unique relationship with that parent. And so I don't know if anybody is going to have the same relationship with Christ, if that is their source, that say somebody else would. And I think that's why we get confused or feel like we have differences. We have differences because we are not made up the same. We all have different DNA. We're brothers and sisters. We're related somehow. That's the genealogy program of the LDS church. But everyone is connected. And yet we have a different relationship because it is unique. What what a blessing. How much worse would it feel to feel like a cookie cutter creation and to be treated with no deference, with no uh, appreciation for who you really, I mean, how sad and soul sucking would that God be if you were like, okay, I've now realized that the truth is that God loves all his creations equally, but also treats them all equally. And also I can't expect anything personal. (laughs) I feel like the, the appeal of God, the appeal is that you can say, God, here I am. What do you say? Do you know what I mean? And and that he will communicate with you through his spirit, through, you know, a, a feeling through, I mean, he will, he wants nothing more than for every child to come and say, Hey, here I am. Uh, what do I do? What, what what does this mean? You know, like who who are you? Are you real? I mean, just he would rather have nothing than but for all of his kids to just just reach out. You know, and that's such a cool feeling to know that you're special to him, and no other amount of children following Christ or praying to him can make up for your absence in his heart. And right. I just think that's so cool. What what do you want people? to feel when it comes to you? When it comes to a one-on-one interaction, Uh I want them to feel like what they think and feel matters to me because it does. I am not a chatter. I don't like chatting about the weather, but I love chatting about real things. This is why this type of thing or grace notes, it's like right up my alley. I don't like nonsensical chatter. Like there's a room for a comical chatter. I'm into that. But at some point, it's got to switch to something meaningful or it loses my interest completely. Uh-huh. And I feel like so much of our lives are spent not talking about what's really going on. So what I like to do is give people the opportunity to talk about it. So I'm that person, for better or for worse, who will ask you the uncomfortable question that nobody else will want to ask you because it's too personal. But I don't feel like it's too personal because you can always tell me I don't want to answer you and I'll be fine with it. But I want to give you the opportunity to tell me something real that you've thought or felt. And often it's it's kind of like in the the whole, in the giving of the testimony, you gain it. Often, I think this is why therapy works so well. So I, I kind of hope people think I'm a personal therapist because all we need to do sometimes is process it out loud what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. And it's a revelation to us. And that that's what music has been to me. My personal songs have often been revelations of like, 
like I'll look back at lyrics from when I was 19 or 20 and I'll be like, oh girl, how did you not see how unhappy you were? And how did you not, how did you not just admit to yourself that you totally believed in God and should be doing something else? Like, how were you so stubborn in your own thoughts and hearts, but yet these revelations poured from your mouth and looking back, it's like, where was the disconnect? So I feel like people just, I don't know. I didn't feel like so many people want to talk about how they really feel. They just don't know how you can't just go up to somebody and be like, listen, I'm really struggling with what happened in my childhood. Thank you for being here. Is where can people find, you know, you're very private. You're not on social media. I am on social media. I just don't care. I just, you can find me there. I'll post about stuff. I just don't really care to post like sexy selfies or, inaccurate versions of my life. So it's just, it's, it's just not going to get the stuff that you would normally get with like, I'm not an internet personality. Let me just set up your expectations. It's just me on the internet. And I post when I feel like it sometimes about my children, sometimes about my bands, sometimes about my show. You don't post pictures of Jodie Foster. You know what? That picture of me and Jodie Foster is on my Instagram. So is you really get on it, get Everyone, on it. And scroll what through. is your Instagram? What is it? It's at Elaine Trees. Because Instagram was a thing when I was doing Neon Trees at the height. So, you know, it made sense. And now I'm kind of regretting it. Because it's like, well, I'm just doing so many other things. I appreciate you very much. Thank you for doing this all the way from Germany. Yeah. uh, Thank you for having me. I think you're in witness protection. I don't think you're really in Germany. I know, right? right? Name's not even Elaine Bradley anymore. I just pop up on the internet every now and again. Thanks, Elaine. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Be in touch. Thank you for joining us on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. This is Paul Cardall with All Heart. On our next episode, we'll speak to the Neon Trees lead singer, Mr. Tyler Glenn. American Songwriter has been a home for songwriters, musicians, and music lovers for over 35 years. And the award-winning pianist, songwriter, and transplant recipient truly believes it is the perfect place for his podcast. 